Welcome to Legal Tech Week for July 31st, 2020, our weekly uh, roundtable where uh, we talk about the top stories in legal tech innovation and kind of whatever area we want to talk about, I guess. That's the general idea, though. Uh, I am Bob Ambrogi. I write the blog Law Sites and have the podcast Law Next. And our panelists this week are the people you see here. We'll let you all introduce yourselves. Uh, Joe, I don't think I ever start with you. So how about we start with you? <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I am uh, back in my usual place. Last week I was in a different location. So it's nice to be back with the yellow dinosaur over my shoulder. Yeah. Um, Victor. Hi, I'm Victor Lee. I'm assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal. I manage the business of law section. Uh, and my typical disclaimer is that I do not speak for the ABA or for the journal. And if I say something stupid on this, then I do not speak for myself either. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Uh, Caroline Hill. Hi there, I'm Caroline Hill, as you just said. <laughs> no need to repeat that. Uh, Editor-in-Chief of Legal IT Insider, based in the UK, with global uh, audience writing about all things legal technology. Yep, and uh, Molly McDonough. Hi, Molly McDonough. I'm a media strategist and communications consultant and uh, former editor and publisher of the ABA Journal. And last but not least, Nikki Black. I am Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with my case practice management software. I am a legal technology columnist. I write regular columns for the ABA Journal, Above the Law, uh, the Daily Record, and the My Case blog, among others. So we could sort of uh, go John Krasinski this week because we've got a couple of good news stories that we can talk about, but we've, uh, we've got plenty of bad news stories too to talk about. But uh, uh, Caroline, you just, uh, you've got a good news story. You want to you start with that? Thanks, Bob. Yeah, so I um, have been got to come in for a little bit of flack on um, LinkedIn from people who say that I only ever write bad news stories about Zoom, um, which actually... Don't shoot the messenger. Uh, it actually is true. So I don't think I've ever written a good news story about Zoom, despite the fact that we all have to acknowledge that Zoom is the darling of COVID um, and has been credited with keeping some firms afloat. Um, but all I ever seem to write about is the security flaws and the um you know zoom bombing and all that kind of stuff um so this week i wrote about cole scott and Kathane, who um they actually work directly um with the senior execs at zoom which is quite cool in itself um the so the chief executive knows the cio at zoom jason um jason thomas and um they have they, they called it standardized around Zoom, um, which what, what that, and I, the, the press release from Zoom said standardized. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And what it means is they've kicked, but they've mostly got rid of WebEx um, and they've mostly got rid of LifeSize, which are their two other communication tools in favor of Zoom. So they've now grouped around Zoom. Um, and, but my headline was something a bit different, actually. I went with the line um, that because they attributed the lack of layoffs or pay cuts to Zoom. Um, so in this press release, which we published on the 23rd of July, they said that the, their ability, they're obviously um, a litigation firm based in Florida, Florida as I said, they said they're, they, and they've, they've managed to conduct hearings, they've managed to proceed with business, not business as normal, but they've managed to can, can proceed in, uh, you know, they've managed to stay busy and, and can keep the cases running through Zoom. Um, and so they credit it, as I said, with, with no, no, no layoffs and no pay cuts, which I thought was pretty amazing. Is that, I'm curious, did that 
was the source of that press release the law firm or Zoom itself? It was Zoom. And actually, well, I worked with them um, on it because I knew about it in advance. But um, and uh, but it was yeah, it came it came from Zoom, which is really unusual because as you know, you know, like in terms of the, the Zoom, the legal sector I think is pretty minuscule. Um, so it's pretty cool that they're paying attention to the sector um, and what's going on. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'll just, so today, um, um, Ari Kaplan did his 100th episode of his virtual lunch and featured David Latt. And he was saying some, some very similar things about the industry. It was just, you know, there was a lot of fear and frozen behavior in the beginning. And then, um, and then firms realized that they were, um, that they had plenty of business still and still could connect with clients and, and, and the, they didn't, they're having much better quarters than they thought they were going to have. And so things are ramping up. And then, um, which is, um, I'll leave it to Bob, but kind of a good segue into the data that uh, Nikki uh, proposed today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you can, that's okay. You can, you, can, you can do the segue if you want. Just, did anybody else have any thoughts on, on that? I mean, it's kind of, I mean, probably every law firm um, in, in the country right now has some story about how Zoom has helped them uh, in, in some way, shape or form, maybe not avoid layoffs or whatever. But, uh, you know, it, there, there isn't a law firm in the country right now, I think, that, that's still alive that can't somehow attribute it to Zoom or at least to some video conferencing software. Um, and it's so easy to use, as we've said, you know, it's, and so what it means is in terms of cu the cultural impact, what's fascinating is, and I think I've mentioned this before, that even the most tech averse, and I get this direct from the CIOs, as I'm sure you do, even the most tech averse partners are now living in Zoom. Um, and it's really changing the face of business now and going forward. Yeah. Well, and, and in our second good news network uh, story of the day, uh, Nikki, uh, my case, had, had done a survey a while ago of the impact of COVID on law firms, and you've just looked, revisited that, I guess, and uh, yeah. it wasn't all bad. Right. Well, we did a second survey. Um, the first one was early on in COVID, and then this was a follow-up survey to see um, how things were changing, and a lot of the areas of focus involved, um, you know, their biggest um, pain points in terms of actually trying to run their practices and represent clients and also um, the in future looking future or forward facing too. like what were the tools that were helping them get through this and then also what were going to be what are the things they're doing to help um, for business continuity down the road in light of all the uncertainties and so there were a lot of interesting results but the ones that I think were the most interesting and not necessarily surprising as we go through this whole COVID-19 thing is, um, first of all, that um, <clears throat> sort of in keeping with what everyone else was just saying, this theme of firms are actually able to conduct a business. They were initially stalled. They didn't know what to do. Um, a few jumped onto the tech bandwagon right away. Others still wanted to wait and see what happened. But over time, they're all starting to um, find that they're able to run their practices, bring in more business, and they're still not all exactly where they had been by any means, but they're staying financially um, stable maybe isn't the word, but they're maintaining, um, in, they're having income coming in the door and they're actually doing better than they had expected to be doing. So that was one finding. Another one was um, remote work, uh, when the survey was taken, the second survey was down from when it was initially taken, which was um, early, the first one was early on in the 
um, during COVID. And remote work was around 70% of firms were working remotely. And now it was down to about 40%. But I would suggest that those numbers are going to fluctuate wildly over time, simply because there's surges in different areas of the country and that people are opening up, shutting back down, only bringing some people into the office. And so I think that those remote um, working numbers are going to fluctuate and we can expect that um, over time. But the one thing that really did seem to be constant and actually was increasing was, and I would argue, yes, Zoom has gotten lawyers through this, but really it's the technology behind Zoom, cloud computing. Cloud computing is what has allowed lawyers to continue working. And so, um, uh, which I'm thrilled about because I've been trying to get lawyers to use the cloud since probably about 2008. My book came out in 2012. And back then people were still, oh, I don't know about the cloud. Oh, it's a little unsecure. Now, this to me is like, oh, like my gosh, they're finally using it. So the um, statistics were that uh, in the first survey, something like 40, 45%, if I recall correctly, of lawyers were either already using the cloud or looking to use it. And now about a little over 70% were saying that cloud is what has gotten them through this. And they're starting to um, invest in the cloud for forward thinking in terms of future proofing their firms from either surges or just other uncertainties that they may face down the road. So this really is um, cloud computing is what is making it possible for business to continue as usual. And for all of us just to watch Netflix, you know, to binge watch shows, to actually have something going on while we're all stuck in our houses. Um, if it wasn't for the cloud, it'd be a very different life that we're all living. Um, so I, there, there were a lot of really interesting results from this survey, some surprising, some not, but uh, the cloud is, I would suggest, the one that I really hang my head on and the happiest about. And Nikki, yeah. I had a question. Sorry. Go ahead, Go ahead Victor. So I had a question about the survey. So one thing that, that kind of caught my interest was it looks like in this section it says, in the next month I anticipate my firm's workload will be, you know, then the choices are overwhelmingly high, high or normal. And it seems like there's, there's a pretty good, um, it, you know, it's a pretty good mix of, of responses, but it seems like most responses are in the high and overwhelmingly high. So, so they're feeling good about their, about, about, about the work coming in and, 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 and being able to have clients and whatnot. Did you, uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if, uh, if you guys drill down to the, the like nuts and bolts, but were there any like specific areas or any specific like types of like uh, areas areas of the law that were especially you know where the lawyers were like oh we're going to be slammed or we're going to have like lots of people coming in? Um, the survey itself, I, um, I we did not go that in depth, but I'm heavily involved in the, my bar association locally. I'm on the board, and prior to that, I was the chair of the um, tech committee, and so I attend a decent number of. Um, our association events and talk to a lot of lawyers and you know the gist that I've been getting is that you know boots on the ground if you will is that lawyers are transactional lawyers there's a lot of um uh wills you know wills are a huge thing so a lot of wills trust and estates lawyers are definitely and also with um kids going off to college for example I have a kid going off to college lots of people doing um powers of attorneys and all these other documents for their kids that are going off into another state so I think there's a lot of transactional work being done um divorce lawyers um everyone's expecting that to go through the roof but the ones I've talked to um that has not necessarily happened yet but they expect anticipate a, a rather <laughs> an increased caseload and then all the litigators are becoming busier and busier as the courts get used to zoom um as they're able to start moving all these cases forward using that functionality and everyone knows how to do it. One interesting thing that happened during the very first board of trustees meeting that I attended was 
um, the incoming president said, um, if you could just share my screen. And then the current president said, would you have ever thought you'd say something like that? He's like, no, I didn't even know what Zoom was two months ago. Like, you know, they're just all adept at Zooming, as I recently heard a judge call it. But so, you know, you're definitely, um, because the courts are becoming more adept with Zoom and lawyers are, um, and because more and more people are using the cloud, I think that the litigators are starting to see their cases move. Criminal defense, uh, and anecdotally, I've heard that that's really a tough one. Not a lot of people getting arrested. Um, and, um, you know, they just have the cases that they already previously had, that they're trying to work through the system. So I hope that helps. The survey didn't dive into that, but that's what I, I've seen. Yeah. One of the things that I would love to see um, more reporting on is I, because I, there has been this anticipation that there would be a flood, at least in certain areas, plus the, you know, opening back up and then it just kind of a crush of cases. So the courts have been focused on uh, doing more case management, um, but I'm wondering kind of how, how these firms are managing uh, surge capacity, if they're, if they're going to alternative service providers, if they're, um, if they're, trying to figure out how to ramp up using um, other other services to add attorneys and capacity to the, some of these particular cases if they're diverting resources. I'm, I kind of expect that there's some alternative service providers who would be well positioned to take advantage of surges. But I haven't seen no. too much reporting on that yet. Yeah, no, I haven't. Well, well, I was thinking about the ALSPs as well, Molly, um, with this report, thinking it would be interesting because one of the interesting things that I've heard is that despite what's going on with COVID, et cetera, that the repapering, the need for repapering is, is very much ongoing. The deadlines haven't changed. All the LIBOR stuff is still ongoing, all the regulatory stuff. So, so it's interesting to see how they, and obviously a lot of that is getting moved to ALSPs, which I imagine um, is keeping them very busy because there's no interruption to that whatsoever. The, the, um, in terms of the, the, the practice areas that are spiking, um, you know, there's, there's lots of bits and pieces of reporting around that coming out. But I, I had uh, earlier this week um, interviewed uh, Kristen Sande, the uh, co-founder of Paladin, which is this, you know, the pro bono uh, management platform for kind of larger law firms. Um, but she, she had did a medium post this week where she crunched the numbers of pro bono cases coming through their platform. And it was really interesting because um, bankruptcy cases, uh, they saw a 350% surge in uh, pro bono bankruptcy and debt cases from the first quarter of the year to the second quarter of the year. Uh, the other big ones were education, health, housing, trust and estates, um, all up you know, huge spikes in, in the pro bono area for those kinds of cases. So that, that doesn't speak broadly, but it gives you one, uh, one piece of the pie in terms of what's going on there. Yeah, we, we did a story a couple, I think a couple months or so ago, or just, I think, actually, I think it might've been in our last issue that, yeah, just looked at bankruptcy lawyers and how, you know, and, and, and this goes back to even, you know, like, like with other, other slowdowns, other recessions, just whenever, whenever things get bad, law firms just start to, just start to, stock up on the bankruptcy lawyers, they start, you know, trying to poach, uh, you know, high-performing partners, or they try to, um, you know, acquire, you know, small, small, you know, specialized boutiques that might, you know, give them an edge up, give them a leg up on, on the competition. It's just, you know, whenever things, whenever, you know, these things are cyclical, whenever this, the cycle goes, you know, goes to, to the bad end, then they're going to, they're going to uh, stock up on their bankruptcy lawyers just because they assume that, you know, when the, when, when the economy gets bad, people, more people are going to be filing. So, um, yeah, but I, I was just curious about other other um, 
other other industries besides that. And I think, yeah, like that it actually makes a lot of sense that, you know, I mean, divorce was the one that we all heard about, like, right. oh, you know, people are going to get, <laughs> people are going to, you know, are, are going to be crazy, go, going crazy, being cooped up in their houses all day with their spouses and whatnot. And, and um, so, so yeah, it's it, it interesting to, to, to just read through the, you know, read through the post that, that Nikki sent and, and, and just seeing like, you know, yeah, I guess there is a lot of optimism and a lot of, uh, as far as like workloads and, 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 you know, things coming through the pipeline that lawyers, you know, aren't, aren't dreading, you know, the next few months at least. Yeah. So on the divorce front, actually, I, we had a podcast, one of our uh, ATL special COVID casts talking uh, with a divorce lawyer about it. And we kind of talked about this and he said that they are busy, but not with divorces. Um, it's not that the, you know, there were a, a bunch of divorces because people were stuck at home, but what I hadn't thought of that he was walking me through is the sheer workload of rearranging orders for child visitation. And uh, like, you can't have them on the weekend because they've been in this state and whatever. And he's, so it's been that sort of work that's been keeping him busy, which I never would have imagined. Like I, we were all kind of thinking about the, the fights while you're in quarantine, but it's really the existing divorces and all that is uh, connected to those having to be renegotiated that's been yeah. keeping that industry going. That's what my uh, one friend had told me too about her caseload and um, that it wasn't the new cases coming in yet, but they did expect it, but it was that type of thing. All the, who, whose kid gets to go where during COVID and how can you visit when there's COVID? Yeah, a lot of that. I spoke to Erin Levine early on and have been following how she's been managing her um, family law practice. And one of the things she did early on was do a, an FAQ on custodial relationships. And I mean, she just, that, that post that she did just, attracted an enormous number of, of comments and so she, now she's really kind of stepped up how she, how she presents that information and it and uh, and I'm I started to, I wrote about it a couple of times about uh, how this is just a, was a booming area for family lawyers um, it, not unexpected if you think about it <laughs> but um, but not where everybody else was saying we should we will see an increase um, but it makes perfect sense, especially, you know, I started seeing disputes over, you know, because one parent wasn't um, as careful with wearing, having masks and social distancing than the other. And that led to major friction and custodial relationships. So, yeah. Well, in the, in, in another area where it's been all good news, the online bar exams are going really well. Uh, right, Joe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's been a super week for bar exams. Um <laughs> Indiana's bar exam was scheduled for Tuesday. It uh, did not happen. Uh, the, um, the tech problems with it were overwhelming and they decided to call it off. I'll get back to that in a second. Uh, in the meantime, <laughs> we'll talk about Michigan, which they had, uh, they were run by ExamSoft. They lasted all of about an hour, I think, before that collapsed. Um, they claim that it was a cyber, sophisticated cyber attack. Um, I think a lot of us are somewhat suspicious that it might just be that 500 people were trying to use the thing at the same time, <laughs> but whatever it was, it uh, sounds in like either a event, attack. yeah, in either event, it's not good, right? Uh, in either event, it doesn't bode well that they're having these sorts of issues with a relatively small exam being the only one of the day when they're looking at having multiple states doing this all at the same time in October, including giant jurisdictions like New York. Uh, so that's Michigan. Uh, Indiana, as I previewed earlier, they 
put off their exam and decided instead they're just going to do it over email. Uh, they're going to email out questions. You email back the answer. It's open book. There's no proctoring. They can't do it. But it really just makes you wonder at this point, how, how, what great lengths are we willing to go to avoid just giving diploma privilege? Like if at this point that it's open book and proctorless, why, what's the point? Yeah. I noticed that also that speaking of your podcast, you had the diploma privilege people on your podcast yeah. this week or last week. I'm dying, oh, yeah. I'm dying to hear that. But did, did they have, what did they have to say about all that? Well, they were largely talking about the work that they were doing uh, with different exams, uh, jurisdictions to try and get stuff done. Um, Washington obviously was a success story for them, uh, but they've been trying hard in other places and they really recounted a lot of the, you know, just the reticence that they get when they talk to bar examiners about it and uh, the clout that the NCBE uh, holds over the entire industry. Um, it's not great. And, and I mean, this is since then, uh, since that podcast, we have this draft ABA proposition to, uh, which it, it's not the strongest worded proposition proposal ever, but it basically says we, the ABA think that it's ridiculous that you try and run an on in-person bar exam right now because gestures wildly around. Uh, and <laughs> it's getting pushback from the NCBE has said they'll oppose it and a bunch of other uh, state bars have said that they're not on board. And it just makes you wonder at what point does this death cult have to stop, right? Like they, they, they are pushing forward with this based on really nothing. And all the evidence is that this is dangerous to do right now. And, and they just won't hear any alternative. Well, and yeah. didn't I just read that in Colorado, they gave the bar yeah. and someone tested positive. And they yeah. had to notify uh, everybody in all the, the room with the first, like 20 yep. people. Uh, it, it was a 200, they were in the 200 person location. Uh, they were at Sturm Law School. So they were at the 200 person location. Um, the, the woman who tested positive, actually the only reason we know is she had a planned surgical procedure coming up and she got tested for completely other reasons because it was a necessary part of getting ready for that. Uh, so she got her results after the test was over that, oh, by the way, while, while you were preparing for this, it turns out you have COVID. So she had taken the whole test as a pre-symptomatic COVID patient. Uh, and yeah, and this is exactly what was expected. And it puts a lie to all these bar exams saying, we can go forward with it because we're taking people's temperatures as though that actually helps. <laughs> as if that means anything, right? Yeah. We just take and the president's lead and just delay it. We'll delay right. the election, delay the bar exams, just put it all off till next year or sometime. And meanwhile, they want us to put all our kids back in school, but that's yeah, a whole different right. issue. But it's the same yeah. thing, you it's know? Whole, yeah. it's crazy time. Yeah. I should say I alluded to, I think I called them the Diploma Privilege People, but the organization is United for Diploma Privilege. Uh, they have a website. They're, they're an organized group of people who are lobbying for this. Uh, and uh, they've, they've been uh, pretty active uh, over the last month or so. So. Uh, any other thoughts on that? Uh, what else? Uh, did, Victor, did you want to talk about, you, you kind of mentioned, mentioned the, the, the big four, uh, I guess, testifying this week before Congress. Did you want to? Yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I, I mean, uh, I, and I, I didn't watch the whole thing. I just watched clips of it. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, just watching, watching an entire congressional hearing is like, you know, but, um, but, 
you know, I think Jeff Bezos said, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting in the sense that like, and and I actually struggled about whether, whether or not to, 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 um, to broach this one. Cause I figured, all right, well, it's a big enough story that it's probably worth talking about, but is anything really going to happen, you know, from, uh, uh, from, from, from these efforts? Cause I mean, just, you know, just, just in general, I mean, even if, even if you don't look at it, like, you know, Washington is broken and, you know, the party just can't, can't agree to anything and, you know, nothing's going to happen unless one party just like, you know, takes unified control of the government. But, but even then it's like, I mean, like when was the last real, like, when was the last real, like, uh, tech antitrust issue where like, it looked like a company was going to get broken up. Was it Microsoft in the nineties, I think, um, you know, and, and, and that didn't happen. And, and, and I think, so it's just, but, but I think the issues that they were talking about were interesting. Just, just the idea of, you know, look is, you know, it, it's a different, you know, things have changed considerably since those days. Now you have companies like, you know, Google and Facebook and, you know, and whatnot, just accumulating all this data and all this information and just how, like, how, how should they be, like, should they be regulated like a, like a, like a utility or should they be, should there be some rules as to what they can and can't do with that, with that information? And I think, I think just, just in that sense, it's an interesting debate, but whether or not anything actually happens as a result of that hearing is, is probably debatable. Yeah, and, and meanwhile, they, that that was what Wednesday, I think, uh, and then yeah. yesterday, Amazon yeah. reported eighty-eight point nine billion dollars in quarterly sales, a forty percent increase over the prior year. Uh, the the uh, the New York the New York Times article that talks about it quotes somebody saying, "Simply put, COVID nineteen has injected Amazon with a growth hormone." I mean, it's just crazy what's going on with, yeah. with, with these companies as their, their, their profits and revenues just surge during this time. And uh, are they monopolies? Yeah, they are. <laughs> Should something be done? Uh, I guess that's the question. Do you think that the Justice Department is going to kind of is going to um, make good on its threat to, to sue? And I don't I don't see it happening. The, pro- I mean, the problem right the problem right now is that the Justice Department's uh, posturing is more tied to their their boss's complaint that Facebook and Twitter censor him than the actual serious issue, which is we have monopolies growing. But yeah. and and unfortunately, I worry that that's going to carry over. And when there's a new administration, they're not going to do anything because they're going to. You know, it, it's just like, oh, well, he wanted it for that reason. So we're not going to be mad at the tech companies when in reality, there's a good reason to want to break up some of these businesses for non-political reasons. I, want, I do wonder how we've allowed really for, to, them to re- reach the state where, um, you know, they have so much power and lack of transparency. I mean, we've talked about fake news we've talked about you know the the impact of facebook and 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 some of the content in terms of political process we've talked about you know how it sort of it's we know that particularly with the social media comes on facebook that they're undermining potentially the political process and it feels like the, the governments around the world are being completely spineless and, and, and there are, and there are obviously many other issues. Um, and it feels like, um, I mean, this feels a bit like a, just a show, a show grilling. Um, but it's incredible to me that they're not doing more about it. I mean, and I think hopefully with hindsight, you know, we'll, hopefully we'll get to a position where we can look back with inc- it being incredulous, but I'm not actually sure whether anything's going to change. Um, I, mean, I think seem- a big, sorry. No, sorry, Victor. Sorry. I mean, I think a big reason is just that 
just like a lot of people in government just don't understand how yeah. how this stuff works. Like they don't, they're ignorant of, because like, you know, if you look at like Standard Oil, okay, you understand Standard Oil, it's very easy to see, okay, they were a monopoly because they controlled like what, 98% of the, of, of, of the country's oil. So it's like you go, you go to a gas station, you get charged more than you should and you get pissed. But like for, for, for Facebook, I mean, I, a lot of people don't even understand how to, I mean, a lot of politicians don't even understand who's in charge of Facebook or who's, in, I mean, I mean, there was one politician that asked, uh, asked, I think Mark Zuckerberg, like why Twitter was censoring or taking down tweets by Donald Trump Jr. or censoring him or whatever. And, and Zuckerberg's like, well, I don't run Twitter. Like, that's not my, that's not my company. Like, what well, I mean, so, so when you're, when you're dealing with that level of, of, of ignorance or that level of just, you know, cluelessness, I feel like that's a, that's a hard that's a hard hurdle to get past. I do think that it was, I, I agree with Joe about the red herring of the of censorship uh, and to, and Victor's points too. Uh, but I do, th I was very impressed with the questions, the probing questions uh, about anti-competitive practices. And there were some sophisticated questions about, you know, um, the, the algorithms that boost rankings of their products and you know is that anti-competitive and that's uh, and that's to me um, what you know something that that congress could do something or an oversight organization could do something about uh, and certainly data privacy and how our data is being used to sell to us and to push products especially their products uh, that they have a they have more of an interest in um i think I think Nadler asked a question that was near and dear to uh, all, of, all of us who are in journalism. He asked about, didn't, what do you have to say, Zuckerberg, about the way in which you artificially inflated the views of videos, which caused journalist or operations around the country to pivot to video and lay people off? And he was like, oh, yeah, that, that, well, I regret that. And it's like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> that was great. But I mean, that, that's the impact that I think a lot of people don't get about how much power they have. They could make something up that caused bunches of people in a different industry to get laid off. Yeah. Isn't there also a, a complacency that's just driven by the fact that we all kind of like these things? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, geez, I hate Amazon, but if I need that device delivered to my office this afternoon, that's where I'm going to go and... You know, I don't want to. I don't want to screw with them too much because uh, I like my overnight delivery or my same day delivery and all that stuff. But yeah, and, and maybe that was why Microsoft got 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 into the trouble that they did, or, or almost got into the trouble they did the nights because their product was bad. Yeah. <laughs> nobody wanted to use. Nobody wanted to use Internet Explorer. Nobody wanted to use Windows, but we were forced to because they had such a large market share. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I don't really think I don't think anything is going to happen certainly until after the election. Uh, and I do think, you know, if, if the Democrats get in office and, uh, um, you know, especially if there's a, if there's a prominent role for Elizabeth Warren in there somewhere, then we might see some, uh, might see some stuff happening. So um, we mentioned the Microsoft uh, trial. Uh, I actually had this conversation with David Boyes, uh, who was the lawyer on the Microsoft trial uh, about a year ago. Uh, I asked, do you see any scenario in which antitrust comes back around at the Department of Justice, uh, maybe even if the election happens and the Democrats win? And he basically said exactly what you said, Bobby. He was like, not unless Elizabeth Warren's the person running it. So that's... Yeah. Uh, a, a bleak future, uh, given, you know, that Biden's not exactly her biggest fan. Right. Yeah. Um, 
Did uh, Molly, did you have anything this week? I forgot if you. Um, I, I didn't pitch anything specifically. I did. I would kind of jump back on. I didn't send this around, but um, something that uh, Nikki said earlier about uh, uh, people not being arrested as much on the criminal side. Uh, that's another area that that I don't think has been covered a, a whole lot. We've been focused on um, arrests during protests and arrests yeah. when they when they're terrible. Um, but there are a lot of jurisdictions are holding back on arrests or at least um, shifting people into diversion programs. Or just beat uh, and, them up and leave them on the street. But, <laughs> um, but so I think there, this is an opportunity for a resurgence in um, uh, tech, technology uses in diversion programs to reach um, uh, people who have, uh, who have been, have had contact with the justice uh, system in some way uh, and negative contact with mental health services or um, other programs reaching into these communities. And I, um, there was a great article um, in the last couple weeks on the crime report about uh, telemedicine techniques being used for in diversion programs for mental health. And that We just lost your voice, I think. Could you guys hear that? <laughs> no, we lost your voice okay. for a second there. Okay, it's because my phone started like going crazy. Oh. Um, so, but that's all it, all those diversion programs that are happening right now during COVID are only happening because there's a, um, a, a temporary allowance um, for doctors and um, counselors to be able to claim, um, uh, to be reimbursed for services over telephone only and not in person. And that's all gonna go away if we shift immediately back to in person without continuing that allowance uh, for doctors. And I think this is, you know, I hadn't really thought about how important it is to um, continue that outreach into justice involved communities um, and also rural communities uh, in ways that can be can can keep people out of the criminal justice system, uh, and I think technology plays a, a really important role there. But the the lawmakers and regulators have to get on board with uh, with being able to reimburse the insurance companies or or the doctors, the insurance companies reimbursing doctors and uh, medical and um, social services professionals. Yeah, we which is a little bit of a segue to the thing I wanted to talk about <laughs> in some ways, which is the, uh, the legal deserts, which is not, not really a tech story, but which has tech elements as, as we talked about. But this, the story that I, I worked on this week that, I, that I, I thought was really the most interesting was just this, this ABA uh, came out with its now annual, its second annual uh, profile of the legal profession, uh, which um, last, you know, last year was kind of interesting just in terms of, uh, facts and figures around numbers of lawyers and numbers of, uh, you know, diversity and numbers of women and that sort of thing. And they've got a lot more of that this year. Um, but they, they added a, a new section on so-called legal deserts, uh, which is also interesting uh, to journalists because there's been a lot of reporting lately on news deserts around the country and, and how that's a growing phenomenon. Um, but the, uh, you know, essentially what they found and this is in a, a huge surprise, but uh, that although we have more than 1.3 million lawyers in the United States, 
there are uh, a number of locations in the country in which there are no lawyers uh, or just one or two lawyers. They found that uh, of the country's 3,100 of the 3,100 counties in the United States, uh, there are 54 that do not have a single lawyer. And there are another 182 that have just one or two lawyers. Um, that, that one or two is important because as they said on a, on a webinar I, I watched this week, if, if you have one lawyer in a town, the lawyer stars, but if you have two lawyers in a town, they both thrive, right, uh, is the old saw. But but it's you know it's really it's really interesting and it and it drives home one of the issues around access to justice, which is that there are a lot of people who live in parts of the of the country where they just can't don't have easy physical access to a lawyer, uh, and so that you know drives home something that you know a lot a lot of those who, who talk about access to justice have been saying for years, which is that's one of the reasons why it's really important for there to be. Uh, effective online tools for reaching people. Uh, and hopefully those people in those rural areas have access to getting online in the first place. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, if, if uh, in an era of, of, of video conferencing and, and legal portals and all of that, you would think that would maybe help address that a little bit, but it's still an issue that many people have to travel long distances to, to even go to a courthouse or see a lawyer. So. It is yeah, I, I, Sorry, well, I, I was just going to say, so like, I, I really think that um, some courts have already made some progress in this area with kiosks and, and other um, ways to, to access the courts. Um, but lawyers haven't done a lot other than legal aid agencies, which uh, they are doing a lot to try to do some develop technologies to bring people in. But again, like Bob said, that access um, to bandwidth and um, and computers is is really hard for some people. And uh, and you know libraries are critically important for that. Um, and when the libraries all shut down during COVID, that cut off an, a huge. Um, um, access point for a lot of low-income people who were used to de dealing with at least their transactional matters um, over the computer um, and and with Wi-Fi or with a uh, with an internet connection so you know that those are issues that are that are continuing I see it as a big opportunity for lawyers to you know try to figure out how to serve those populations um, and especially build in transactional practices in those areas yeah yeah, I was going to, I was just going to make the opposite. I mean, it's interesting you say um, about lack of access to technology, which obviously underpins any comments about remote, you know, the, pro the progress that we're making with remote, you know, remote conversations. But I do, th I do think that there's a huge amount of, of, you know, positivity coming out of this lack of, lack of um, attachment to geography and to, to physical premises in, in many ways. You know, it's, it's coming out in, in the access to justice space. Um, it's coming out in people. So, so teams are being onboarded. So, so I wrote a story recently about um, in the um, e-discovery or due diligence process, when, when teams are brought on board, normally it's, they, they can get to a certain location, but it's becoming increasingly virtual. And actually that's affording opportunities, job opportunities to people further away from London, for example, where they're being, so, and I think it's the same, hopefully, but, but it's an interesting point, Molly, about, you know, obviously if you don't have the technology in the first place, then it doesn't help you. <laughs> Um, so I guess that it's an interesting in terms of like, how do you take it? 
how do you start to help what 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 how do you in terms of the aba or whoever it might be in terms of the sort of the how do you what do you, what do you focus on in terms of helping people is it to get better technology and more more of it or is it to try and it's, it's an interesting point isn't it what does that what does help look like going forward to try and improve access to justice in those regions yeah it, it's it's a tough question i mean there, there was a there was an aba uh, panel this week earlier this week that uh, um was um around the release of the report uh and you know they 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 talked in part about how do you, what, what's the solution just to getting more lawyers into uh, some of those rural areas? And uh, not sure they had any good answers, but I mean, some of the answers people have talked about before are are providing, uh, you know, I- incentives in some way, such as uh, uh, tuition forgiveness uh, programs for lawyers who set up practices in, in certain kinds of areas or, or some kind of maybe loan programs or something to help them get started. Um, and then, you know, and I think the other uh, important issue, um, I think they raised on this panel, I'm confusing my panels because I watched two panels this week that both had some of the same people on them, but there was a, also the ABA this week did one on the, you know, the kind of the future of pro bono. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, the point that they keep making over and over again, and, and that uh, I think we've made on this, this show before in other discussions, is that the answer to access to justice isn't always a lawyer, that there are other ways to deliver legal services and other professionals who can deliver legal help and legal services. Um, and uh, so part of the answer in some of the more rural areas is probably to look at uh, paraprofessionals uh, of other kinds who can help deliver face-to-face services, plus the, the whole tech equation on the side to help make uh, more, you know, a greater diversity of services available to these people. But, uh, I don't know that we had. I had one last else? thing. Did you have one last thing? Good. The, the, the New Zealand, um, so that there's a sort of world oh, yeah. first again it's a positive story so um the new zealand government um says it's become the first to create an algorithm charter for um, governing the use of algorithms by public agencies um we've looked before and and zach and victoria obviously did some really extensive research looking at algorithms and and the kind of the black box the concerns over them being a black box um and their their research talked about wisconsin and loomis um, which is obviously one of the cases where in the u.s where um, they relied on an algorithm compass in that case in order to extend Eric Loomis's sentence. Anyway, in New Zealand, they have come up with a charter which specifically says that in, if they've come up with them, um, kind of, um, I, I, I've I sort of looked at it fairly briefly, but it, it, there's, a, there's different types of, if it, but if it impacts on, if, it, if, if it's used, used on, in a decision that's going to impact on someone's life, then they have to interrogate, but you have to understand the data that enabled them that decision to be reached, which <laughs> seems like a complete no-brainer, right? Like, oh, you need to understand how that decision was made. Oh, amazing. But obviously that's not actually, although it sounds like a no-brainer, that's actually not what's happening in a lot of cases. There's the trust that of the output of a lot of these tools when they really don't. So, they, so they've made this pretty significant commitment that 
you need to clearly explain how decisions are informed um, by algorithms, including publishing information about how data is collected, secured and stored. Um, and there is a commitment to make sure that data is fit for purpose by understanding its limitations and managing bias. Um, and that's been signed throughout for, by 21 agencies in New Zealand. Um, and, and I think hopefully that will be the start of other similar charters, um, because it certainly ought to be. It ought to be. And as you say, that's a good news story, but it's going to depend on where you sit as to whether that's a good news story. Right. Some of the vendors may not agree that that's a good news story. No, you're right. And in terms of the other question, the other thing that occurred to me is, you know, it's all very well. They've come up very excited about it, but it's, it's very difficult, as we note, you know, there's a lot of the governments don't write this, you know, the, the, a lot of it, if, unless it's open source technology, how do you, how do you really, st it's very hard to unpick actually. Sometimes it's very, it's actually really difficult to, to, to work out what the bias is, to, under, to understand exactly what the data is. It's a really time consuming process and, and you hope, you know, you, you sort of wonder what's actually realistic um, and, and, and hope that they will honor their commitment, but understand what it is they're committing to. Um, yeah. because, and, you know, and I was starting to, I started to wonder about, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any competitive element for governments in terms of using this type of stuff, but there's always that fear, isn't there, that, you know, you don't want to fall behind. And if other, if other governments aren't making the same commitment, are you going to then feel, you know, there's all these, it's very complex. Um, but so it'd be interesting. I think this is one of those stories where we need to follow it up perhaps yeah. in, a, you know, and then see how, <laughs> see how they've got on. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very interesting. It's really great. Well, and I think that the vendors, I can understand why they'd have some reticence about this, but I also think that they should welcome it because the biggest barrier to using AI tools is the element of trust, right? The user doesn't trust the output because they don't know where the output comes from. And so they don't want to use the AI tool because then they're just going to have to redo whatever it is to make sure that the output is correct. Like, yeah. in, for example, legal research. I'm going to have to conduct the research in a regular search engine to make sure that I think that they're giving me the information I need. And at that point, what's the point of paying for this AI search engine when I'm redoing the work anyway? So if you have an understanding as the consumer of where this information is coming from, and if bias is a concern for you, which it should be, but, you know, th then you're also assured that there's not bias built into it. It's going to somehow affect the output. So I think in some ways that would actually encourage people to um, utilize AI software because it's already been vetted, if you will, rather than just by a private company. That being said, you did say, you know, you alluded to the fact that it's time consuming to do that. And so I can understand why they might have some issues. Or if you're like Clearview, for example, and you've scraped unlawfully scraped the internet for data i can see why you'd have a problem with that as well allegedly and, unlawfully and also and also, to, and, also, <laughs> and also to joe's point about understanding you know do, do they have the expertise and you know it's um obviously there's a lot of it's quite a complex area and you know that relies on quite a lot of co collaboration and sort of uh, so yeah whether they have the expertise in order to achieve what it is they're trying to achieve well there's also uh an aspect of the fact that there is intellectual property contained in these algorithms sometimes. I mean, a company, you know, in revealing its algorithm uh, is, is going to be revealing what's unique or special about it, its, its algorithm if, if, it, if it's 100% transparent about it. And then it's sort of giving away the shop a little bit if, if it does that, um, even, even if it's, even if there are IP protections around it. Um, I mean, that may be a concern for some companies, I think, but. 
Um, um, I, I just yeah, wanted to ahead, uh, yes. um, raise a, a point that uh, Sean Jameson uh, sent in the comments uh, about about rural attorneys being it being difficult to recruit folks to come in and practice. You know, a lot of people just don't they want to either get out or move on. But I'm wondering if that's going to change now that a lot of people are looking at fleeing their urban areas. Uh, you know, we're seeing a huge shift and the ability now to uh, maintain a large firm uh, practice or practice in a, in a large city and um, be in a remote setting. So I, I kind of, I, I feel like there's this great opportunity now. I, I'm hearing more and more uh, lawyers uh, and professionals say that now that they know they can work so effectively remotely, they're going to move back to hometown. Uh, they're looking for farmland. They're, you know, they're, you know, looking to get their ideal home in the mountains uh, as long as they can get bandwidth and maybe have a crash pad in a, in a city where they spend some time occasionally to meet in person, you know, you could be anywhere. And I, and I, I, I feel like there's this opportunity to attract lawyers to come into some of these rural areas, especially where there's a strong legal need and there's a, a reason, uh, an opportunity for practice. Yeah. And, and I mean, look, ultimately you're going to go where the work is, right? I mean, if you're, you know, yeah. I mean, if you get laid off from a firm or you get, you know, um, you know, uh, yeah, like laid off or fired or whatnot because of, for economic reasons and whatnot. I mean, yeah, maybe the first instinct is to, to set up your own shingle and do it on your own and go with all the, with all the, the hundreds of thousands of other people that are doing it you know, in New York City or in D.C. or in San Francisco or whatever. But, you know, ultimately, you know, not everyone's going to be able to do that. Not everyone's going to be able to survive. And, you know, yeah, is it, you know, it, maybe, maybe a lot of people that go to law school, they think, oh, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to want to stay in my rural town. I want to go live in, you know, the big city. But ultimately, you know, you're going to have to do what you're going to have to, you're going to have to do what's best for your career, what's best for your family, what's best for your life. And and if that means moving to, you know, um, one of these legal deserts and setting up shop there, and you know, getting 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 that business, then you know, why not? Yeah, I, I had this experience in my own life a little bit. When early on, when I, I maybe when I was very young, I, I practiced for a while in the, in the Virgin Islands. And, and one of the odd things about the, the bar of the Virgin Islands is it was uh, largely composed of people like me who went down there because it seemed like a fun place to move to and live in. But, but people who grew up in the Virgin Islands and went off to go to law school often didn't come back because they discovered the big city and they discovered they could make a lot more money up there and there were a lot more jobs up there. So even, even when there were programs to sort of you know, help uh, uh, provide um, scholarships and whatever to send people from the Virgin Islands to law school, they would not end up coming back to the Virgin Islands to practice law. They would end up staying wherever the heck they were or somewhere in the United States. So, um, so there, uh, somebody has actually asked a, a question here, uh, which maybe we can give a little feedback on uh, regarding, uh, says, I enjoy your conversations about rollouts of new apps in the legal tech space in your collective experience. What is the most important Part of launching a new app, and what's the most memorable launch you've seen, and why? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Well, I get a bit boring about this, but um, 
I think I've already, I've already said, you know, make sure that it solves a problem. <laughs> I guess maybe that's earlier. Maybe that's not to do with the launch. Maybe that's to do with the actual creation. So that maybe doesn't, I suppose you're, he's actually asking about the launch itself yeah. in terms of the marketing side of things. Well, there yeah. are some companies that don't ever think about that until right. they get to the launch stage. Right. So, so, so I would aren't t- explain to people very clearly what it solves, right? So, and where it fits in the market and position yourself because people like to, they, they like, they don't have much time and they like, they have, we all like to operate in boxes. Says. I know I'm quite guilty of, you know, I want to understand quickly and I want to know exactly where it fits. And so I want to know what it does, what it solves and where you fit in the market. And if you can explain that really quickly, I think that immediately positions, you know, you, you have to create a nice little box for yourself. <laughs> yeah. I, I think Caroline's right. And the, and the other thing for me is that we used to write about apps all the time and they're often really good ideas, great uh, opportunities to solve a problem or a pain point for lawyers or consumers, and no path to adoption. Zero, zero yeah. way to get wide enough adoption for this to be useful to anyone. So being able to see a path to adoption is really important, at least from my perspective as a journalist, to cover something. Uh, and I've seen that done effectively with partnerships and pilot programs with bar associations or communities where they can demonstrate that they have that users have tried this even in a beta and that it solves so many problems or it works <laughs> and that uh, you know with a little bit of a you know a boost with people writing about it they may actually be able to solve even more problems um, that's that's my take yeah for something specific I think Actually, I mean, I know we talk about Josh Bradford a lot. I think, I think their, whatever they did for their rollout, like, was very good. Like, because they got, like, a bunch of outlets to write about how uh, there's, the, you know, correctly or not, this robot lawyer, this robot lawyer app that's going to take, take care of your parking tickets. And that instantly catches your attention. You're like, oh, my God, this is crazy. Like, this is, this is really interesting. I mean, even, even, even people, you know, who are in that field are like, oh, my God, this is very interesting how you know, oh, there's this app now that can, that can help me fight a, fight, fight a traffic ticket. I mean, who can't, who can't relate to that? And, and, and I just thought, I, I thought that was a very effective, like, like um, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's just, you know, the product was something that really resonated with a lot of people, like as far as its original purpose, or if, you know, you know it, it, it happened to catch the, catch the attention of a lot of journalists who helped blow it up. But I thought that was a very, that was a very effective campaign, like as far as launching, launching an app goes. I, I was very impressed by that. Well, and we're still, I mean, I think we actually might have t- touched on this before. There was certainly debate when he first launched the Do Not Pay app about whether uh, whether the media had, uh, whether the media or perhaps he, he had uh, exaggerated the the, uh, the numbers of cases or the dollar amounts involved in, in, in the cases that, that had been uh, resolved by that app, at least initially. But, but, oh, def- uh, definitely, it, yeah. Yeah, it, it, people certainly picked up on it and, and ran with it. Uh, and, and maybe that answers the other part of this question, which was what was the most memorable launch you've seen and why uh, other, other than uh, do not pay or any, any other really memorable app launches. And I don't know by app, whether he literally just means an app or, or an application of any kind, but um, anything else that jumps out at you? Well, for, for me, it's always, you know, when case text came onto the, um, playing field and when they with that brief analyzer you know now everyone else has jumped on the bandwagon but that to me was a really unusual unique way at the time now other people are doing it but of of using artificial intelligence to 
um, provide a different way of looking at legal research. So that was always really interesting to me. And I thought that that was a, it was just a unique solution or way of approaching the, an, an issue that, a thing that, a thing that we all needed to do and have been doing in the same way over and over for years and years and years. And they came at it from a new angle. So I thought that was really interesting. That's the only one that really stands out in my mind. Um, yeah. And that was more that the product for, than the launch. I mean, they didn't really, yeah. they did anything particularly fancy about the launch of that. It was just, right. the product was really unique when they came out with it. And, right. Sometimes I'm kind of biggest... disappointed in myself that, that my memories are, the, the big launches are, had a ton of money about uh, behind yeah. them. Like, like Zoom just suddenly appeared on, uh, not Zoom, um, Legal Zoom started appearing on every single commercial. That was back when there were still commercial TV. Right. And it, they were everywhere on ads, everywhere I saw, they, they just did a, a full court press and, uh, and West, uh, Thompson Reuters Westlaw for their Westlaw product used to do huge launches like that, where yeah. just everywhere you went in legal, you would see their brand and their new product and, uh, and they did trainings. And um, I do think I, yeah. I do like launches that include product trainings and introductions and demos um, that are easy to ex easily accessible. I think that helps too. Yeah, then, and, then, and they would they, they would rent out buses in the cities where the con legal conferences were. Like the whole side of the bus would be plastered with the Westlaw logo and you know crazy things like that. I mean, I went to a conference where I spent like an hour just within with you know personalized training. Well, I, you know it was like a hundred people in a room, but learning how to use the product that was great. I'd, yeah. And then I could use it. Yeah. So. Was it was it uh, Bloomberg Law last? Was it last year at Delta? I think maybe. Or I forget which conference it was that in, uh, or maybe AA, where they, they, they were rolling out a new product, which turns out they weren't actually rolling it out at that point, but they were previewing it. But they invited everybody to a speakeasy, uh, and there was kind of a secretive thing around why they were inviting you there, and it was really hard to find the place. And, and you got there, and they were like, every, everybody had taken them up on it. It was packed with people waiting to get into this little speakeasy, and they were doing demos of this new product. That was, that was effective. <laughs> the, 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 the question I was going to, the only thing, sorry, I kept interrupting you, but I was going to say sometimes the biggest blasts are, are not followed up with, you know, so I think about Thompson Reuters' panoramic. Okay, they didn't do a speakeasy, but, you know, they got, we got a demo, and it was all like, oh, this is how many years of research and, you know, this is going to be the new, and I actually called it so, and I, I got a little little bit of flack about this. I called it game changing, right? <laughs> and I got really, really excited about it. And I'm like, this is the new, you know, this is amazing. And I haven't heard about, I don't know, what was it? Anyone know what's happened with Panoramic? Like, so I'm not sure, perhaps it's me, perhaps I'm a bit out of touch, but I've not heard of it since. And so my, my, my game changer article is about the only thing that I think has been written about it. Right. <laughs> and um, so it kind of made me a little bit nervous as well about sometimes being too, you know, <laughs> confident off the bat. <laughs> yeah. Well, we talked last week on, on Thompson Reuters uh, anti uh, anti splash rollout of its new legal news service. It, 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 it was more that it kind of, uh, tripped over uh, letting it leak out the door rather than making a, a big announcement about it. But I, I think that was by intent also. Well, we are, uh, we've, we've gone way too long already here. Um, and uh, I think it's time to wrap up, but we, uh, 
As I, as I think a lot of you know who registered for today, we have now set it up. So you should, uh, if you registered to attend today, you should just get a reminder in advance of next week's program and shouldn't have to re-register. So we hope to see you again next week. Uh, same time, same place. Uh, let us know in advance if you've got any stories you want us to talk about. Uh, you know, you can reach any of us. Uh, I'm sure you all know where to find us, but Twitter or wherever. Uh, and uh, thanks to you all for listening. And thanks to panelists for participating again. See you all next thanks, week. Bob.